This is Human Brands, a podcast about actual feelings. And this episode is called The Political Brand. The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyway. It's getting them wrong that is living. Getting them wrong and wrong and wrong. And then, on careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive. We're wrong. American Pastoral, Philip Roth. I honestly don't know in what country you're listening to this. But in general, it really doesn't look that good. Like, literally anywhere. Politics doesn't seem to be a thing anymore, at all. God knows how we got here, but mistrust in our leaders has confirmed itself a worldwide trend. And the pandemic didn't help. Are you going to take it? Are you going to let your kids have it? in power and in charge, have seemingly become horrendous phrases to indicate someone who illicitly occupies an arbitrary position. You don't agree? Well, then ask yourself what political figures you personally trust in your own country. Count them, please. How many are there? One? More than five? I doubt that. To stand for being lied to by our governments, by people that we should trust. They want us to trust us. So, if we were to consider political parties as brands, which they actually are, then we would be looking at a huge problem, wouldn't we? We could call it a monumental drop in sales and perception, and of course, trust. We can't make informed decisions. We feel that the government is making these the, the decisions for us. And that's really not fair. But let's take it one step at a time. What does it really mean to trust politics? Arguably, that we count on politicians to deliver in our best interest. For us and for everyone in our community. We ideally confide in lawmakers to watch over us while we take care of our lives. It's quite a service, isn't it? And representative democracy doesn't come away cheap. We literally give our leaders a very consistent part of our income, trusting that they will reinvest it in eventual necessities. So it feels like a set of responsibilities for which you really want to trust this kind of brand. We're not talking about some shoe manufacturer, but a mix between a bank, your local police officer and a babysitter. You surely want to know them well before you entrust them with the life of your own kid. There are of course many reasons for the current mistrust. Starting from universally diffused cases of corruption. Or generic disappointment. Just think about younger generations in relationship to climate change or not feeling represented due to a consistent age or gender gap. But also the sensation that politicians might have lost touch with the real everyday problems of average people. Isn't this the ground on which populist movements have grown so strong? 
I've read a lot about hydroxy. Uh, I happen to think that it has an impact. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute. In 1992, American political scientist Francis Fukuyama wrote a worldwide best-selling essay called The End of History and the Last Man, in which he argued that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, and therefore of the Soviet Union, we had come to an historical deadline of political conflict, since the world would slowly align to Western liberal democracy, and there would be no more need for wars in the future. The Taliban, among many others, did not agree with this theory. But what is unarguably correct about Fukuyama's statement is that in the beginning of the 90s, politics as we knew it had died. The Iron Curtain between East Germany and West Berlin has come tumbling down. East Germany announced today it is opening its borders, allowing its citizens to go anywhere they wish. Globally shared values, political movements with millions of people asking for a better world, for universal peace, anonymous disarm, an overall fight against hunger and so on. Those crusades, led by charismatic leaders and political idols, have vanished for good. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. The spread of social media and technologies of intermediate connection have then given us the sensation that we could create relationships even more effectively worldwide through the screen of our smartphones. But is this really accurate? We surely possess a higher awareness of what is going on around the world. But are we really capable of feeling that direct connection with things taking place thousands of kilometers away from us? I'm talking about that kind of empathy, narrated by Philip Roth in his masterpiece American Pastoral, where the young daughter of a middle-class couple decides to sacrifice her whole life after seeing Buddhist monk Thich Quang Duc burning himself to death in Saigon. We know more, but relate less, one could say. Revolutions don't begin in the countryside. We're not talking about revolution. You're not talking about revolution. And this is where the political mistrust kicks in. Because politics is about relating to the needs of the communities. Having common issues at heart is the first step to a fulfilled voting conscience. Though if all the information we gather during the day, and it's far too much, doesn't lead us to action, then we don't feel empowered to step into what concerns shared necessities. And I'm not talking about citizens per se, but politicians mainly. We don't think our leaders empathize enough with our needs. We feel their interest far too intermediate their communication strictly tied to ulterior motives and more individual purposes. The political brand has lost its capability of relating to the consumer's wish. But is there somewhere around the world a political brand that is trying hard to reconnect to their electoral basis? Of course there is. Women like me aren't supposed to run for office. I wasn't born to a wealthy or powerful family. Mother from Puerto Rico, dad from the South Bronx. I was born in a place where your zip code determines your destiny. My name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm an educator, an organizer, a working class New Yorker. I've worked with expectant mothers, I've waited tables and led classrooms. 
and going into politics wasn't in the plan. But after 20 years of the same representation, we have to ask, who has New York been changing for? Every day gets harder for working families like mine to get by. The rent gets higher, healthcare covers less, and our income stays the same. It's clear that these changes haven't been for us, and we deserve a champion. It's time to fight for a New York that working families can afford. That's why I'm running for Congress. This race is about people versus money. We've got people, they've got money. It's time we acknowledge that not all Democrats are the same. That a Democrat who takes corporate money, profits off foreclosure, doesn't live here, doesn't send his kids to our schools, doesn't drink our water or breathe our air, cannot possibly represent us. What the Bronx and Queens needs is Medicare for all, tuition-free public college, a federal jobs guarantee and criminal justice reform. We can do it now. It doesn't take 100 years to do this. It takes political courage. A New York for the many is possible. It's time for one of us. AOC, as she's now famous worldwide, was born in 1989 and took office in 2018, at the age of 29, winning the Democratic Party's primary election for New York's 14th Congressional District, defeating Democratic Caucus Chair Joe Crowley, a 10-term incumbent. The clip you just heard comes from her campaign video called The Courage to Change, written by AOC herself. It is a masterful example of both classical and emotionally impressive storytelling, as we rarely have seen in recent years. We strongly recommend you to watch it. Ocasio-Cortez is the youngest woman to ever serve in the United States Congress and, together with Rashida Tlaib, the first female member of the Democratic Socialists of America elected to serve in Congress. Let's run through some numbers. Twitter, 12.8 million followers. Facebook, 1.8 million followers. Instagram, 8.6 million followers. Makes your head spin, doesn't it? Between July 8 and 14, 2019, Alexandria drew more social media attention than the Democratic presidential candidates. Tracking company Newswhip found that interactions with news articles on Ocasio-Cortez numbered 4.8 million, while no Democratic presidential candidate got more than 1.2 million. Most of all, a corpse had risen from the dead. The Democratic Socialists of America. As you know or may not know, right now one of the biggest names in politics is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There you have it. That proves it right there. That tears it. Let's put it this way. There's nothing scarier to Americans than socialists. Maybe only the Arab world is. The word alone makes the heart of the U.S. tremble, making them instantly think about the end of the world as they know it. Wealthy, capitalist, and white. A fear still haunting them from the years-long struggle for supremacy during the Cold War. It's a scary Cortez trying to scare and frighten everyone. The world is ending. And- she wants to get rid of children, mm-hmm. airplanes, and cows. And health insurance. Is it okay to still have children? Well, I don't know, Alexandria. Can we? You're the boss now. 
If you say we can't reproduce the species, of course we won't. It's your call. But it only gets worse for both redneck and super-rich America. On February 7, 2019, Ocasio-Cortez submitted her first piece of legislation, the Green New Deal, to the House. She and Senator Ed Markey released a joint non-binding resolution laying out the main elements of a 10-year economic mobilization that would phase out fossil fuel use and overhaul the nation's infrastructure. In the process, it aimed to create jobs and boost the economy. Ocasio-Cortez's environmental plan, termed the Green New Deal, advocates for the United States to transition to an electrical grid running on 100% renewable energy and to end the use of fossil fuels within 10 years. The changes, estimated to cost roughly $2.5 trillion per year, would be financed, in part, by higher taxes on the wealthy. The Green New Deal, getting a lot of pushback from Republicans. One of the most controversial political manifestos to emerge in quite some time. Radical extreme Green New Deal. If the Green New Deal took hold, our, I think our grid would stop. There's going to be no more airplanes and we're going to stop cows from doing what they normally do. Later in September, that same year, Antonio Garcia Martinez of Wired opened an article stating, I'll just say it. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is a social media marketing genius and very likely a harbinger of a new American political reality, end quote. The leitmotif of raising taxes on America's wealthiest then reached a high point in 2021 when Ocasio-Cortez attended the Met Gala, wearing an organza gown painted with the phrase, tax the rich. This image of her rapidly became top news in the whole Western world. When Aurora and I were first kind of partnered, uh, we really started having a conversation about what it means to be working class women of color at the Met. And we said, you know, we can't just play along, but we need to break the fourth wall and challenge some of the institutions. And, and you know, while the Met is known for its, its spectacle, we should have a conversation about it. So... What we're looking at now is a very solid case of a brand that was perceived as old and obsolete, and that now has found a way to reconnect to its audiences. How? First of all, by listening to their strongest demands, age and gender, two extremely delicate factors that have been connoted with the disconnection between citizens and politics an aspect that was crucial in the evanescent capability to empathize with their representatives. Secondly, communication. The old brand was connecting with its audience through outdated channels and with an old-fashioned tone of voice. Third, showing the most human face they could get. Humble origins, hardworking, unafraid of her fragilities. AOC has the great capability of showing herself both extremely determinated and sometimes also crying live on her profiles. And most of all, optimistic towards the future. Is it really that hard to imagine how good socialism, such an outdated word you could argue, is doing on social media? Well, at the dawn of the new decade, the hashtag socialism on TikTok got 345.5 million views. On Reddit, inside r slash socialism, 
almost 300,000 comrades produce tons of content and information every day. While on all other social networks there are billions of interactions generated each year by profiles attributable to the struggles and campaigns promoted by the Democratic Socialists of America. Hard to believe, right? A bunch of dudes are starting to follow me now, and I think it's because they think I'm gonna be posting sexy videos just because I'm a stripper. Joke's on you, bitch. We're talking about Marxism. Sex work is a class struggle. Thanks, but no thanks, Karl Marx. I'd rather have the billionaires that run McDonald's tell me whether or not I can have an abortion. We are witnessing an exponential rise in loyalty towards activists rather than politicians. And this is because the trending belief is that anyone can become an expert on anything by just googling stuff for half a day. Politics is a job, activism is not. And don't get me wrong, I consider myself an activist too, or maybe more of an advocate for certain values I believe in. But this is exactly the point. Nowadays, everybody likes to consider themselves activists for something. Because it just takes a little bit of time each day, taking a break from posting pictures from our parties and pets, to repost some superficial opinions about climate change, to make us activists. Though the big difference is this. Activists point out a problem that politicians will then try to solve. It's too easy for some media to say, Greta Thunberg is just complaining about things without suggesting any solutions. It's not her goddamn job. She's a kid, rightfully concerned with climate change. The ones handing out the solutions should be the politicians. When we entrust activists with our loyalty, we're practically patting ourselves on the shoulder. And this kind of individualistic approach is key to understanding the mistrust towards politics. Brand loyalty means that I, as a consumer, trust a certain message over a longer period of time. Because I can find that the brand won't let me down, nor betray my expectations. The lesson marketers and brands have to learn from the political brands, and specifically from the Democratic Socialists of America, is a key driver for radical change you really need to start listening to your audiences and act accordingly. Not only, it is urgent that we begin to form a stronger empathic connection with consumers, putting on a human face, more similar to their own, showing feelings they can relate to, contributing actively and concretely to an improvement of their lives. Brands really could help make this world a better place. But there's one required factor they cannot ignore. They need to want it with all their hearts. But they need a heart first. Logos don't have a heart. People do. Let us march 
This podcast is brought to you by Human Brands Observatory, a project by No Panic and Act. This episode was written by Giulio Rubinelli, and this voice belongs to me, Axelina Gunnarsson. Visit human-brands.org for more stories about actual feelings.